The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We have the privilege to go to the Word now, so let's go to God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, 20-28, as we continue going through this epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote, a church that he started, he planted, pastored it for a year and a half, left the church to plant other churches, but still stayed in touch with the church, was concerned about them, wrote a couple of letters, so he wrote more than two letters to the Corinthians. He refers to those, trying to help them as a young church, a Gentile church, not real firmly rooted in God's revelation, and writes a 16-chapter epistle in our English Bible really to just solve a bunch of problems. And so the problem that he's addressing in chapter 15 is real simple. It's one problem. It was verse 12. Or apparently somebody in the Corinthian congregation, just a few people, not a lot, were verbalizing, articulating that there was no resurrection of the dead. That when you died, you went in, who knows what, you know, died and you went into nothingness or whatever, but there is no uh, bodily resurrection of the dead. And so the word had been getting out and it was like, cancer or gangrene began to spread and Paul needed to put a stop to it because it is such a foundational doctrine to biblical Christianity. It is a distinctive of Christianity, the resurrection. You can't have Christianity without the resurrection and that's why Paul spends so much time in chapter 15 addressing this issue. Even though it was a few people, he spends a lot of time laboring, I think, to protect the other people who either believed the resurrection and were susceptible to this lie or maybe were ignorant and didn't know a whole lot of things. But they were real Christians, and Paul needed to inform them with further revelation to show the implications of how devastating and how wrong it would be if you denied the resurrection. Because there's a lot of these Corinthians don't realize the implications of doing that. And so in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, Paul reminds them what the gospel was. Here was the gospel. You said you believed it. It's what changed your life. It's what you stand by. And at the heart of this gospel was Jesus himself who rose from the dead. Then the next section after that, he's logically proceeding. You said, here's the gospel. It's about the resurrection of Christ. And here are the devastating implications if you reject bodily resurrection. That's what we looked at last week, 12 through 19. That if you reject resurrection, then you might as well just trash the Christian faith. You have no hope in this world. And you pathetic Christians are most miserable of all men. That's the bad news. But that's not reality. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so we can rejoice in the reality and not um, the consequences of rejecting the resurrection, but in the good news and actually the positive blessings, promises, and implications that come from the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And as a result of him rising from the dead, you also and every other believer someday will rise again from the dead. And so Paul goes on, verses 20 to 28, and that's what we're looking at today, to actually give theology of the resurrection that he hadn't given before. As a matter of fact, this is some of the most detailed theology of resurrection given in the Bible. Even the Jews of the Old Testament with their 39 books in the Bible didn't have as much information on resurrection in the future as Paul is going to delineate in just these nine verses, 20 to 28. This is new stuff, and it is exciting. And so that's Paul's intent here. So you must believe in the resurrection. It's indispensable, and here are the blessings and promises from God. As a matter of fact, not just blessings and promises of us. If you reject the the resurrection, you reject God's ultimate goal in the history of the world and the universe for all eternity, really. 
There are eternal implications for God Almighty and His plan if you reject the resurrection. And that's where this argument is going to lead to in verse 27 and 28. But let me read, uh, follow along, uh, verse 20 and following in 1 Corinthians 15. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God, that is the father, may be all and all. So let's go ahead and look at this. I titled the sermon, The Purpose of Resurrection, The Purpose of Resurrection. And just three points of emphasis I want to give you here. Uh, and the first one is verses 20 to 22. Speaking of the purpose of resurrection, Paul argues that Christ's resurrection gives salvation to sinners. Salvation to sinners, verses 20 to 22. And so Paul is taking these folks to task who are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And Paul says, if you deny bodily resurrection, then you deny salvation itself. Because resurrection is one of the means by which God saves us. It's one of the byproducts or the results of salvation. A lot of times when we hear the word salvation, we think only of forgiveness of sin. That kind of legal, invisible transaction. But in the New Testament, salvation is a bigger term and it incorporates more than just the forgiveness of sin. Part of what Christ has done in terms of his salvation is not just saving our invisible soul, not just giving us eternal life, not just forgiving us of our sin. He's also going to save or bring salvation to our physical body. The redemption of our body. That is also included under the umbrella of salvation. So our spiritual salvation is totally complete right now. If you believe in Christ, all of our sins have been forgiven. We're born again. We're adopted into the family of God. But the big picture of our salvation is not yet complete, meaning our bodies, our lowly bodies that are decaying and dying day by day, they, our body needs to be rescued and restored and resurrected and redeemed. That's the word he uses for resurrection in Romans 8 and saved. So he's going to save our soul. He already has, if you believe in the gospel. And in the future, he's going to save our resurrected body. That's what I mean by salvation here when I say that. Uh, the purpose of the resurrection, one of the purposes, Christ's resurrection gives salvation to sinners. Jesus said, because I live, because I will come back from the dead, because I will come back in a resurrected body, you also shall live. You also shall have someday a glorious resurrection body. That's part of the salvation that Christ promised us. Verse 20, looking at 1 Corinthians 15. But now, contrast, the reality is Christ has risen from the dead. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 
So one of the arguments that Paul makes is, uh, why do you have a hard time believing that one man who rose from the dead can have an impact on many others in like manner and they also rise from the dead? When you believe just the opposite about one man impacting other people through Adam. It was one man, Adam, who sinned and he died and he impacted all other humans by imparting death to them. So it was the work of one man that affected so many others. So also Jesus Christ, because he is risen, he affects many others as well, but not through death and sin, but through resurrection life. So that's his analogy. And that's the parallel that Paul is making here about the impact that Christ has and the salvation that he brings. This week, uh, I mentioned how one of our members had died. And, and people die every day. I mean, just that's a statistic you can look up. I mean, a lot of people die every day around the world for a lot of different reasons. Some of those deaths are expected because we know they're going to happen. Some are tragic and unexpected. And very emotionally challenging. Some of the deaths that happen spontaneously seem unjust. And there's no human answer. And ultimately, when someone dies, someone asks the question, why do people have to die? Or why do they have to die in this manner? Why do they have to die this way? That's one of the ultimate questions in life. It's been asked for 6,000 years. Why is there death? Why do people die? Why is there uh, unjust death? Why is there cruel death? And if you boil it all down, the Bible gives a very clear answer. It's not flippant. It's not a platitude. It is the truth. And it's what Paul says here. Death is the byproduct of sin. That's all there is to it. God said that in the beginning. Adam, in the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. So that's a biblical answer. It's a legitimate answer. It's the place to start, really, especially with younger ones and children, when they ask you, uh, Mommy, Daddy, why why do people die? Why did so-and-so die? Well, first you start with what God has said clearly in his word. First of all, death is of this life. It's of a fallen, cursed world. It's a result of sin. It's where you start. It's the baseline. Then you get to the good news, too, when someday God's going to eradicate death. And we're going to see that in our third point here in just a second. But verse 22 is his point. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, comes here on a mission not to just save sinners of their sins, but to save them in their entirety of who they are, body, soul, and spirit, which includes their physical body that is cursed and dying. And Jesus Christ is also going to save our bodies and turn them into a resurrection, eternal, glorified, sinless body for all eternity, just as Adam brought sin and death to all those who came out of his loins. So power of resurrection brings salvation in our physical bodies. Look at verse 22 because it stumps people a lot. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. This verse has been used out of context many times and twisted to advocate universalism or the idea that everybody is going to heaven. Because on a cursory reading, for as in Adam all die, because of Adam's sin, everybody dies. Everybody, believer and unbeliever alike, no one is exempt, right? So also... In Christ, all will be made alive. All will be saved. All will go to heaven. That is the conclusion that some people try to make and argue for universalism or there is no hell or God is just a loving God and he's going to save everybody eventually anyway. And there are many people who believe that currently and many in the past who have believed that. 
Origen, the early apologist of the church, believed that. He believed in universal salvation. He, he believed a lot of weird things. He believed in the salvation of Satan, eventually. He also, at the same time, denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is Origen now. Origen, early Christian apologist. Denied the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so that's why whenever I'm reading a Christian book and somebody quotes Origen to make their point, that doesn't convince me. It's like, why are you quoting that guy who denied the bodily resurrection of Christ and said Satan's going to heaven anyway? Um, he really did say that. But that is contrary to what Scripture says, which is clear. But it, just to uh, clear the air on verse 22, so we know for sure that the Bible doesn't teach universalism. There is a heaven, there is a hell. And we know clearly, Paul teaches this, that only those who believe in Christ are going to heaven. That's not obscure in Paul's teaching. Even in 1 Corinthians. So that Paul is not saying that everybody's going to heaven at all. There is a parallel. There is an analogy he's making between Christ and Adam. And it's pretty simple. And it has to do with how the person is related to that man. All people that are related to Adam die. All people who are related to Christ live. That's it. That's how simple it is. Well, who's related to Christ? Well, only those who believe in Christ. That's why he uses this phrase. It's very specific. All those in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. In the book of Ephesians, over 20 times, the Apostle Paul refers to a Christian as someone who is, quote, in Christ. That's one of his favorite phrases to refer to a Christian in Christ. And that's what he means here. So anybody who is related to Adam, and that would be actually all of us, by blood. We all die. On the spiritual level, anybody related to Christ who are in Christ will be made alive like Christ in the manner of bodily resurrection. That is the parallel. That's Paul's point. Jesus Christ's resurrection matters. It is significant. It's the heart of Christian doctrine. It is our hope. And it's what literally gives us life and ultimate completed salvation where our forgiven Invisible spirit will someday be reunited with our perfect resurrection body where we will live with God in glory forever. That is an awesome truth uh, that is basic to biblical teaching. And that's Paul's main point in verses 20 to 22. Christ's resurrection gives salvation to sinners, complete salvation. So on the one hand, our salvation is complete, but it's still yet to be accomplished. It's complete in the forgiveness of sin. Regeneration of the soul, it is to be finished and completed someday in the future with a resurrection body. And boy, there are times where I long for my resurrection body. How about you? I know we all do. So let's go on to point number two. The power or the purpose of resurrection, verses 23 to 26. Uh, Point number two, Christ's resurrection guarantees subjection of his enemies. Subjection of his enemies. There are those of us, or maybe those of you, some of you out there, in terms of your personality, you like people and you want people to like you. And you just, and there are ways I'm like this, and you just can't stand the thought of somebody not liking you. And you don't like the fact of having enemies. And you just wished everybody would like you. And you can't stand that notion of having Enemies. Well, the sad thing is, is once you became a Christian, you inherited many enemies immediately like that without you even knowing it. That was one of the shockers to me when I when I got saved. When I got saved, I was uh, exuberant, excited and uh, young and 
love and love everybody and can't we all just get along? And then I realized, wow, we can't all get along. Uh, there are enemies out there. There are people that don't like me. There are people that don't like me for what I believe. There are enemies that I didn't realize that I had. And I learned about them as I got older. And that's what scripture says. So the moment you become a Christian, here are some of your enemies. Immediately, Satan is your number one enemy, right? That's what scripture says. Behold, your enemy. It's a very personal, your enemy. It's not, behold, Pastor Cliff's enemy. No, it's your enemy. First Peter 5, 8. Behold, your enemy, the devil, Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking to shred you to pieces all of your days. So when you became a Christian, that was the first enemy that you immediately inherited. And then um, sin became your enemy, that it lives in you, that lives in me, that we can't shake and get rid of. And that will be an enemy of me and an enemy of you all of your days here on earth. Those are two wicked, vicious, evil enemies. And one lives with you all the time. Sin in you. And then Satan harassing you from the outside. And then all of his demons. And then the world became your enemy. That's what scripture says in James and also in 1 John. If you're a Christian, you can't be a friend of the world. You're an enemy of this world. And this the world views of this age. You can't try to accommodate the world. You can't be friends with the world and friends with God at the same time. So there's four horrible enemies right there. Satan, sin, Satan's demons in the world. I'm not done yet. Uh, then there are those who will be your enemies who don't like what you believe. They don't like your Christianity. They don't like your dogmatism. They don't like your conservatism. Uh, they don't like your fundamentalist attitude. They don't like your bigotry. They don't like your narrow-mindedness because you believe Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. Uh, and your uh, gross immorality or your, your high standard of immorality that offends people. The truth offends. And uh, there are people who don't like that. And they become personal people who become your enemy. It's just reality. No matter what you try to do at times, they're still your enemy because they hate the truth. Jesus used that word hate. And then finally, the worst enemy of all, we're going to talk about it, or the last enemy, which would be death. And that's what Paul calls it, enemy. So we have these horrible enemies. And so going back to verses 23 to 26, the good news is with Christ's resurrection and his resurrection glory and his resurrection power and his ascension on high and his reigning as the high priest over the entire earth and the entire universe, the fact that he's a resurrected king establishes and proves that he has authority over all enemies of yours, all enemies of mine, all enemies of his, and he will reign over them. He will subject them, some progressively, some ultimately in the future. But that is where all of this, that's where all of world history is headed. We are on God's plan, God's course. Don't get distracted by what's going on in the world today with like ISIS and all these other crises that are kind of throwing you off and make you myopic and things. And get you in a pen. No, God, God is in control. He is on the throne. Everything is happening accordingly, perfectly to His will to accomplish His goal to, till the end, till the consummation, till exactly where He wants it to go. That's where we are headed. And Christ's resurrection is guaranteeing that that is going to happen. That's why the Christian always has hope in this life, no matter what is going on. What a refreshing verse. Christ is on the throne. He is in charge. He is the king of kings. He is totally sovereign. He knows about everything. Nothing happens without him allowing it to happen. He is in charge. He has a plan. It will be fulfilled. All for his glory. That's the essence of verses 23 to 26. But after Paul argues that uh, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep, verse 20, which means that all those who have died in Christ are also going to be raised again, literally, bodily, 
someday in physical bodies. That is guaranteed because Christ is the first fruits. Yes, people die, but Christ will make them alive. And so the end, verse 22 guarantees that every believer will be resurrected. But then he makes this argument in verse 23. But not everybody is going to be resurrected in the physical glorified body at the same time. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 23, there's an order to these things. There's a sequence. And that's actually what the Greek word means in the beginning of verse 23 for order. It's a military term and it means that there is a sequence. It's a deliberate sequence. It's a chronological sequence actually. And there are certain things that have to happen. And he's talking about the resurrection. There is a resurrection order and sequence. Or there's a, an order to the resurrection. Each person will be raised. Every believer guaranteed will be raised in a glorified body just like Christ, but in the proper order, in the proper sequence. Well, what is the sequence of resurrection? Some people just believe in a generic resurrection. At the end of the age, everybody will be raised at the same time, which is not true. There's an order. Here's the order that the Bible teaches. Uh, two times in this passage, it says that Jesus Christ is the first fruits. What does that mean? That means he will be the first one to rise again from the dead. Did you know that Jesus was the first person ever to rise again from the dead in the Bible? Some of you might be thinking, well, that's not true. I'm not done yet. You might be thinking Lazarus and all that. And to, to rise again from the dead in a perfect, glorified body, never to die again. That's why Jesus is called the first fruits. Yes, Old Testament saints, Elijah raised some folks from the dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Jesus raised at least three people from the dead during his ministry. They weren't raised in glorified, resurrected, perfect bodies. And they probably all died again. Jesus is the first one and the only one that ever rose again in a perfect, resurrected body and never died again. That's why he's called the first fruits. And first fruits that's used twice in this passage comes right out of the Old Testament. If you haven't read the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with it, especially the book of Leviticus. Levit Did I say Leviticus? That book that so many Christians, when they're reading through the Old Testament, they go Genesis, Exodus, and then they skip Leviticus and go to Deuteronomy or Numbers. Well, there's some great truths in Leviticus. And the first fruits idea comes right out of Leviticus. If you don't know what first fruits is in Leviticus, then you're not even going to know what this is talking about. So... Um, we have to go, this is the one passage we got to look at. Go to Leviticus 23. In the days of Moses, 1400 B.C., before Christ, God has rescued almost 2 million Jews out of Egypt, has brought them for 40 years now through the desert. They are going to enter the promised land shortly. God is giving his law, his Ten Commandments to Moses, and then he proceeds to give several hundred other laws to Moses for his people when they become a nation in the promised land. It's like their constitution. And Leviticus is part of that. And part of those laws are religious laws, how they're going to conduct themselves, how they're to worship as a people. And so that's Leviticus 23. And uh, the, the laws that he's giving are about holidays, holy days, special days that need to be recognized by the Jewish people. They need to be celebrated accordingly at the exact time on the exact occasion in the exact manner and it was very specific and it was only to be done by the appropriate people like the priest exactly as god has decreed and if that was violated there were severe consequences get this even death if it was violated and so in leviticus 23 you have several holy days that god is laying out when you get to the promised land moses make sure the people my people the jews celebrate these days throughout the year. Now, 
I would say just about every holy day in the Old Testament was actually a shadow or a picture of the Messiah to come. That is Jesus. And just about everything that happened in the temple or that existed in the temple or the tabernacle was a picture or a shadow of Jesus, the Messiah to come. That's what Hebrews says. In the temple, it was amazing. I mean, think about the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, the Ark, that little box. Inside of it, what was it? Well, there was the shepherd's stick of the man during the days of Moses who led the people of Israel, the shepherd's stick. Well, Jesus said, I am the great, the good shepherd. What else did they have in there? They had a jar of manna, God's provision for his people. In John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the manna that came down from heaven. I am the good shepherd, like that stick. I am the manna. What else was in the little box there? Was the Ten Commandments representing the word of God. The word of God. Jesus said he was the living word of God. That's what the Gospel of John says. He was the word of God. It's amazing. Everything, even the way the box was carried by Four dedicated holy priests carried the Ark of the Covenant. The same way that holy angels guard and protect and serve around Almighty God and Jesus in heaven. I mean, you just go on and on. The things in the temple, the water basin. Jesus said he was the water of life. Uh, the ultimate thing in the temple was the lamb that we would be sacrificed over the altar. And John the Baptist said, behold, the lamb of God pointing to Jesus was the lamb of God. Everything in the temple, every holiday looked to prophesied through picture. Jesus Christ and who he was and what he would do for his people. And the holiday of first fruits was no except. It's absolutely amazing. So look at Leviticus 23. There are several holidays mentioned here. We read earlier three, four sermons ago, First Corinthians uh, 15, 1 through 3, and it said uh, the gospel, this is the gospel, uh, that Jesus died for sin according to the scripture, and that he rose again from the dead uh, three days later according to the scriptures. Really, I mean, was there ever anything in the scripture that predicted Jesus would rise three days later? You can go to Hosea and kind of twist that passage and make it say that. Um, Jesus did refer to uh, Jonah as Jonah was three days in the grave, so I also will be. But other than those two, there's nothing really in scripture explicitly that says and the messiah will die and rise again three days later i'd say this is the closest that we have and it's a beautiful picture let's go ahead and look at it leviticus chapter 23 uh first verse five in the first month moses on the 14th day of the month when your people go into the promised land they need to celebrate the greatest feast day of the year next to atonement and that is the passover the passover during springtime and you, and the main thing you do at Passover is you take a lamb that was innocent, you don't break its bones, and you slaughter it, you kill it on behalf as a substitute of sin for the people before God. The Passover. Did you? Jesus died on the night of the Passover. That that is just mind-boggling. He died on the very night. Jesus is the Passover. He is the Lamb of God. That is not coincidence. It's explicit. So that holiday pictured the Messiah when he would die. He would die on Passover. Isn't it amazing? You go through the Gospels. How many times the Pharisees and Sadducees tried to kill Jesus prematurely? That is a ploy and plan of Satan because it would undermine the prophecy in the Old Testament that the Messiah would have to die as the Passover on Passover day. That's why Jesus kept saying, it's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. It's not yet my time. It had to be on the Passover. So that's the first feast next one verse 10 speak to the sons of israel moses say to them when you enter the land promised land which i am going to give you and uh, reap its harvest then you shall bring 
in the sheaf of the first fruits. So the next holiday was first fruits. Well, when did we celebrate first? First fruits was when you pulled or harvested the first part of your crops that were yet to come. You plant a garden, you plant a field, you plant wheat, you do it in phases. Uh, some is growing faster than others, and then some is, there's a little bit that's ready for harvest, and you pull it, and it's, oh man, this is good stuff, we're going to have a great crop this year, oh, let's uh, uh, eat the first fruits or whatever. No, God said, no, you give me the first fruits in honor of me, in thanksgiving to me, and yet at the same time, as a promise that I will bless that more is coming to follow. That was the feast of first fruits. Well, the amazing thing about the first fruits of when it was to be done, if you go on and read verse 11, uh, he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord uh, the day after the Sabbath. When was the first fruits to be celebrated? The day after the Sabbath of the Passover. Isn't that amazing? So there was the Passover and then there was the Sabbath, which was, okay, the Passover Friday. Then there was the Sabbath Saturday, and then on the following Sunday, you were to celebrate first fruits. Wow. Passover. Jesus died on Passover. He is the Passover lamb. That was Friday. Saturday, he was in the grave the entire day. The next day, which was called first fruits, Jesus Christ came out of the grave. On the feast of first fruits. Unbelievable. Fifty days later, in Leviticus chapter 23, there was another feast day, verse 15 and 16, and it says 50 days, 50 days after first fruits, 50 days after Sunday, 50 days after Easter, 50 days after the resurrection was another feast day to come, and it was called, that they were supposed to celebrate called Pentecost. What happened 50 days later after Jesus rose from the dead? In fulfillment of this Old Testament holiday, Jesus Christ, or God, sent the Holy Spirit and started the church on the day of Pentecost. On the holy, sacred holiday of Pentecost. Not by coincidence, but in accordance with God's plan. So you got three major holidays that are fulfilled in Jesus Christ and his mission as a result of his resurrection. Absolutely amazing. And you can just go on and on and on of how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment that's why he said he came to fulfill the entire Old Testament. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 15. So now when it says uh, two times, Paul says that uh, Christ is the first fruits, guaranteeing uh, that others will follow him in resurrection. That's what he means. Verse 23, Jesus is going to put all things under subjection. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming or in his presence. And so there is an order to resurrection. And so what is the order of resurrection following after Christ? Well, the first fruits is Jesus Christ. Then what came after that? The second phase of resurrection, according to Matthew 27, was after Jesus rose from the dead, the veil was torn. Then it says there were saints living in Jerusalem who came out of the tombs and were risen from the dead. And they went around and visited many. That is weird, but that is awesome. And it doesn't say they died again. could be that they ascended back into heaven. They just, they left. But they, they were part of the first fruits. Christ rose first, then those saints. Well, what's the next order, according to Thessalonians? Uh, the next resurrection of believers that's going to happen is at the rapture. That is very clear in First Thessalonians 4. And the next one to go are those who have already died in Christ. So dead believers are going to be resurrected, and they're going to be meet Jesus Christ in the air, and they're going to be given resurrection bodies. Then uh, the next who come after them are those who are alive and remain at the time of the rapture. So if the rapture happened, if the rapture happened right now, any Christian that you know who has died would go before you 
and get caught up to Jesus in the clouds and be resurrected in a resurrected body in the clouds in the air. And shortly thereafter, all of us who are alive, we'd get sucked up to and then instantaneously our bodies are going to be transformed and changed according to 1 Corinthians 15. Resurrection. So that's the order. Christ, Jerusalem saints, uh, dead raptured saints, then those who are living right now during this lifetime. And then there's the tribulation period. And in the middle of the tribulation period, God gives two witnesses, Revelation 11. And they're going to be two prophets. They're going to be killed. They're going to be murdered. Uh, They're going to be dead for three and a half days in Jerusalem. It's going to be videotaped on CNN and shown around the world. And the people in the Middle East that uh, murdered them are going to uh, show their bodies around and celebrate their death and desecrate their body. Wait, that's already happening. Desecrate their bodies. And then after three and a half days, the life of God is going to come in them and they're going to rise from the dead and ascend into heaven. Resurrection. They are the next ones to be risen. Then at the end of the seven-year tribulation, Old Testament saints will be risen from the dead. Noah and all of those guys, according to Daniel chapter 12. And then after the Old Testament saints get resurrected, we begin the millennium of a thousand years where Jesus Christ literally comes down and reigns on planet Earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Literally on the earth, says Revelation 5.10. On the earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And during that time, there will be believers who entered into the millennium in non-resurrection bodies. And when they die, they will be translated or resurrected. I don't know how that's going to work. But just instantly, poof, believers, they will be resurrected. Millennium saints who die. And then at the end of the resurrection, the last of this order of resurrection will be all unbelievers who have rejected Christ at the great white throne judgment, Revelation 20, 10 and following, And they will all be resurrected and judged by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That is the order of bodily resurrection that is yet to come. And that's what Paul is referring to here when he says everybody doesn't rise at the same time. There is an order. But Jesus Christ is the first fruits. He is the promise. He is the guarantee. He is the one who makes it possible. Jesus Christ, the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, the parousia, the presence of Christ. And then after all of these resurrections at the end of the age, Verse 24 says, then comes the end. Then comes the telos. It's not, it's uh, the end. It should be, and then comes the fulfillment. And then comes the completion. And then comes the coronation. And then comes the big crescendo. And the ultimate fulfillment of all that God has been planning all throughout human history and even into eternity. That's what the end means there. So that's actually a better translation. It's the fulfillment of all of God's plan. And then that will come. After God accomplishes everything that he has purposed in the word of God is going to come to place. And then the end will come, the ultimate fulfillment, when he hands over the kingdom, when he, he, that's Jesus. Jesus is building a kingdom right now. He's been building a kingdom for 2,000 years. During the tribulation, he will keep building his kingdom. During the millennium, for a 1,000 years, he will build his kingdom. How does Jesus build his kingdom? By saving sinners and adding people to his kingdom. That's what it means by building his kingdom. It's not necessarily external structures. It is saved souls. Jesus, the king, needs subjects in his kingdom. And every saved soul is a fulfillment of building his kingdom. So he'll do that until the rapture. He'll do it through the tribulation. He'll do it all throughout the millennium. That's what Paul is referring to. As we're informed by other scriptures. And so then Jesus Christ... Um, And he hands over the kingdom when he's done to God the Father in absolute obedience. Father, here's what you have called me to do. Mission accomplished. I live just to serve you, to please you. 
as the father of the Trinity. And he's going to hand the kingdom. What's he going to hand to the king? What is the kingdom? He's handing all these saved souls throughout the ages to the father. Here are your people that you've redeemed, that you have glorified, that will be your servants forever. Subjects of the kingdom. And part of this process is the middle of verse 24, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So in the meantime, Jesus has to deal with, uh, these are probably evil forces, demons, and Satan. Anything that is anti-God. So in the future, Jesus is going to stamp out and squelch all forms of evil on the earth and even in the spiritual realms, including Satan and his demons. They are going down. 100% subjection to the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he's done, mission accomplished, he gives it all to the Father. Father, I've re- I have retrieved to you everything that was lost in the garden through disobedience. And you now, Father, are in your rightful place of reigning on high, reigning over all, reigning in glory with your redeemed people forever. That's where history is going. It's amazing, the sweep uh, that Paul gives us through the Holy Spirit here. Verse 25 says he must reign. So Jesus Christ must reign. He will continue to reign. He is in charge. He is on the throne until he has put all his enemies under his feet. This is, in other words, you can be secure in how history is going. God is in total charge. Jesus Christ is in total control. The last thing that will be conquered beyond sin, beyond the world, beyond Satan is death. Verse 26. This is important. Sin, uh, what do you think? What should the Christian view of death be? It's not yippee or oh, we have no. Death, first and foremost, needs to be seen as an enemy. It is. He says it's an enemy right here. Death is an enemy. Death is horrible. Death is vicious. Death is evil. Death is wicked. Death is of the devil. According to Hebrews chapter 2, it's his greatest weapon and tool. Death is an enemy. I think one of the reasons that Jesus wept in John 11 was the reality of death of his good friend Lazarus. Jesus knew he was going to raise him from the dead, but just the reality of death. It's the byproduct of sin. Sin is the antithesis of a holy God. Death is sad. Death is a vicious, wicked, powerful enemy. And you know what? God's going to stomp it out through the Lord Jesus Christ. When he gives the kingdom to the Father, subjects all things to him, which leads us to the supremacy of the of the Father. Point number three. Let's go on. Verse 27 and 28. Christ's resurrection is fulfilled in the supremacy of the Father. The glorification of the Father. The restoration of all things in honor of the Father. It's what the, the resurrection is going to accomplish. He goes on with this theme of subjecting all things for the goal of presenting everything in obedience to the Father. Verse 27, For and he quotes, this is Old Testament truth. This has always been God's plan. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. So the Lord Jesus, the Messiah is going to put everything in subjection under his feet. He's not going to put himself under subjection. And that's why he goes on with the explanation. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident or it's manifest or it is clear that he himself, the Messiah, is accepted. He's not going to subject himself to himself. And while he does present the kingdom to the Father, so there is a Father-Son eternal relationship at the same time, there's still this equality in the Trinity among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in terms of their nature as persons of the Godhead. So Jesus, the Messiah, the glorified Messiah, will retain authoritative reigning power all throughout eternity in heaven. He is accepted, but 
puts all things in subjection to him, the Father, verse 28. And when all things are subjected to him, the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father. So Jesus will continue in an eternal Father-Son relationship with the Father. It's, it's right here. I don't know how that works. They're equal, and yet there's this order of subjection of Father and Son between Jesus and the Father. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all for all eternity. And that is the end of the story. No, that is the beginning of eternity. Isn't that amazing? That is absolutely amazing. That is Christianity. And that's what distinguishes Christianity from every other religion in the world. This theology of the future, this eschatology, it is so detailed with precision and it's being accomplished, it's being fulfilled, it's right where it needs to be and the ultimate goal is that God will be honored ultimately for who he is by everyone, even unbelievers who are condemned and assigned to hell forever, even in their existence, they will be giving glory to Almighty God. It's amazing because he is a God of holiness. Well, with that, as we go into communion, uh, I want to read this passage to encourage our hearts. If you go to uh, Revelation chapter 3. So we're going to partake of communion today. And communion is given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his saints to believe. So if you're a Christian today, you're invited to take communion. Uh, we're going to pass the plate of the bread first. And as it comes around, just grab it carefully. Grab uh, the bread. Hold on to that. Um, and then we'll pass the plate with the cup. And then we'll take it together. And while you're waiting, you can be praying in your own heart, um, examining yourself, as Paul said to do, confessing your sin, asking for Jesus' forgiveness, also thanking him for ongoing forgiveness of sin, and thanking him for so many other great truths and blessings like the resurrection. But to prepare our hearts, uh, when the men are ready, you can come down to the front row with the the bread. And I want to read this passage. Um, in Revelation verse, uh, chapters 2 and 3, there is a promise uh, to the overcomer. And uh, seven times Jesus, I'll just summarize it. Seven times Jesus says to the believer, so if you're a believer, he calls you an overcomer. You're going to ultimately, you're going to be an overcomer. And all the, the, and in seven times he says that to the one who overcomes, to the one who overcomes. And every promise to the overcomer is a promise fulfilled, not in this life, but in the next life. In Revelation two and three. And one of the promises to the overcomer is that because you have overcome, I am going to let you sit down on my throne. Jesus's kingly throne. Can you imagine? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has a universal, heavenly, eternal throne. You talk about all glorious. And Jesus says, if you're an overcomer, I am going to allow you to sit down on my throne in the future the same way that the Father has allowed me to sit down on his throne. I mean, that just boggles my... I don't even know how that works. God the Father is all supreme. He is preeminent. He is greater than all. All are subjected to him. He deserves all glory and praise. He doesn't even have, God the Father doesn't even have a body. He's a spirit. Yet he does reign somehow in heaven that is clearly manifest and visible for all of us to see. There is a divine presence worthy of awe called his throne. 
The Lord Jesus Christ has been privileged to sit on his throne, the Father's throne, as a result of his obedience through death and resurrection and ascension. So Jesus Christ, in many ways, has equal authority and power as Almighty God the Father by virtue that Jesus is king and reigns on the throne with the Father. And the mind-boggling reality is that Jesus promises us fallen, forgiven, lowly, finite sinners in this life that someday we are going to be resurrected and that's why we are called overcomers. And one of the blessings that we're going to get when we are in heaven is that we get to sit on the Lord Jesus' throne. That is awesome. I have a lot of questions about that. How long do I get to sit there, Jesus? How are you going to fit all of us on the throne, Jesus? Uh, And on and on it goes. I mean, we're just, you know, that reduces us to infant children are thinking because it is so amazing. But uh, again, the picture is several things to the picture. There's intimacy there. Someone that invites you, that's like a grandpa inviting you up into his lap, isn't it? Well, that's a welcoming. Come, let's get close. It's not like God the Father and Jesus are up there and there's a zillion angels and there's all the people of history who've ever been saved and they're up there in resurrection bodies and Jesus and the Father are up there and you're like in the last row. And God can't even see you. Yeah, wait, is uh, is McManus here? Did he make it in? Um, and we're, we're we're isolated. We don't have access to the Father. We don't have access to the risen Lord Jesus. This is a beautiful picture of intimacy. It's so personal. You, single Christian, are going to be allowed to sit on my throne. That is absolutely amazing. And I don't know how that's going to work. But that's a promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to be fulfilled in our resurrection bodies. Uh, with that, let's go ahead. I'm going to go ahead and pray while the men are still passing the elements out. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. and We thank you for this great truth from Scripture. This great truth from you about the reality of resurrection. It's the rock bed of the gospel. It's what gives us hope. It gives us hope in this life to have uh, hope to persevere and to think about the reality of our existence in the next life, being with you, being intimate with you, being submitted to you, free from sin, mourning, tears, evil, tragedy, pain, and ultimately death. As you've said in Revelation 21, it will be eradicated. What a blessed hope that you've entrusted to us. Father, we thank you for this great gift and salvation, forgiveness of sin and the redemption of our bodies and a secure future for eternity. Help us to glorify you all of our days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.